Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Colony Drop, a Gundam podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Isaac. This is your favorite Gundam podcast, where we talk about everything from Gunpla, Gundam lore, anime series, Gundam movies, favorite characters, music, manga, anything and everything that is Gundam happens on this podcast. Brian, what are we going to talk about today? Today, Isaac, we're going to talk about Mobile Suit Crossbone Gundam Skull Heart, the direct sequel to Crossbone Gundam. Skull Heart is a manga series published from 2003 to 2004. To put that in perspective, Crossbone finished publishing in, I think, 97 or 96. I forget which one it was. I think it was uh-huh. 97. Isaac, how would you describe Skull Heart? It's kind of like a, a compilation of little vignettes. You know, whereas Crossbone Gundam was like one continuous narrative. Skullheart is just one volume of like short stories. Right. It it feels very much like a little epilogue. Like the main story is done. This is a little bit of information about what happened after. A little miniature a couple of miniature adventures happened after. In some ways it reminds me of uh, the end of Eighth MS team. You know, Mikkel, mm-hmm. he kinda went off and you know, the war's over, but he went to go look for um uh what's what's their names? Oh god. Ina and uh <laughs> Ina and Hero. <laughs> Shiro the hero. There you go. <laughs> so it's a lot like that, but this one's, um, shall we say, definitely takes itself less seriously. <laughs> Gets pretty lighthearted, a little wacky. It was quite the fun ride after uh, Crossbone Gun. I'm going straight into here. Yeah, I think it definitely has its ups and downs. To me, it felt like, Isaac, that this was a test of like, hey, does everyone want more Crossbone Gundam? <laughs> I suppose so. Or hey... You know, they defeated the Jupiter Empire, but there's kind of a few threads that that still need to be taken care of. <laughs> yeah. But I'd say most of the story takes place three years afterward. Wow. In UC0136. Well, one of the stories takes place in 0079, Isaac. Yeah, flashback. Uh, one takes place in 0133, which is the same year as Crossbone Gundam. So should we just jump into it, Isaac? They each have some charm. Some are a bit wacky, like you said. Did you have a favorite before we start? I'm going to say I liked them all for different reasons. I liked, well, the one that kicks us off because, like you said, it goes back to 0079 and that gets really epic and funny in a way. <laughs> I also like the one concerning Amaro because, yeah. you know, my heart kind of skipped a beat and I was like, oh my God, is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> and the other ones, you know, it was good to see everybody back again. Even in the other ones where a lot of different stuff happened that wasn't really related to, um, or maybe got a little campy or lighthearted, I'm glad we got to see them kind of address, you know, Jupiter Empire because they're still kind of out there. Sure, they lost their mothership, but they're not really sitting around on their hands, right? Yeah, it definitely just fills in some of the questions that maybe you had had after the last one and kind of adds on to the world that was left when it ended. You know, going to your point, or your original question, I'm going to say I like the first one more because of everything that happened in 0079. <laughs> How about you? What was your favorite? Uh, yeah, I think my favorite is probably either the first one or the or the Amaro story. Okay, nice. The first one was definitely just really funny. Yeah. It felt very self-aware to me. Yeah, definitely. Not only did it feel like the author was writing a Gundam story, but he was a fan of Gundam for a long time, and you could tell he knew what was funny in the context of a Gundam story. And then the the Amaro story, I thought, was just... That was, like, pretty much the good story in the book, I'll say. <laughs> it was certainly had the highest stakes. Right. Yeah. So, Isaac, chapter one is called An Idiot Pulls Through in a Ball. 
This is about our favorite mechanic, Uman. Did we decide his name was Uman? Yeah, we'll go with Uman. How else would they pronounce it, I think? Uman? I don't know. <laughs> Uman? That sound that doesn't sound as good. We'll go with Uman. Uman. Uman Salmon. It's a long A. <laughs> so, listeners, you may remember that during Crossbone Gundam, he continuously told this story about how he was a new type because he took out six doms with one ball during the one-year war. And this is a perfect vehicle to deliver that story. So just like, you know, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we wondered for years what happened in Budapest, this is the this is the Budapest story of Mobile Suit Gundam. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> this explains a lot about Uman. So we flash back, Isaac, to 0079 when Uman was, was a young lad. He was only 16. And he's going out in a ball into the Battle of Solomon. But he's added something to his ball. He sure did, Brian. Being a, um, shall we say, a clever and forward-thinking strategist, because if you remember, by the time he's on the crossbone, uh, sorry, the Mother Vanguard, he's been promoted to a strategist at that point in his life. His plan is to make his ball look like a giant Gundam head. <laughs> he's been slaving away in the hangar bays, just modifying pieces of extra material and making it look like the exact replica of a Gundam head around his ball. So listeners, if you can imagine a ball, it's got those two kind of spindly arms and on top of it's that long, uh, long cannon. Imagine that on a Gundam head and that's what you got. It was pretty funny, but his commander, uh, her, her name is Yona. She was not too impressed. However, he takes it out anyway. So when did you realize that this chapter was going to be a full-on comedy, Isaac? Because I realized it when he took it out in Solomon and he flew past the officers on the bridge of a capital ship and he passed them and the other one turned to the other one and said, did you see that? Like questioning whether or not (laughs) what they saw was real. (laughs) I knew it was a comedy when they were in the hangar bay. I I saw that and I was like, oh my God, this series is going to be pretty lighthearted. You know, (laughs) like there's no way this can take itself too seriously. And they didn't. And I loved it. It was great. It was, it was so brilliant seeing him go out and yeah, those two officers not really being up to date on what exactly he was doing. Um, I imagine that might've stopped him if they knew ahead of time. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think this was, this clearly was not a Federation approved modification of his ball. No, definitely not. She was his commanding officer, right? She was, yeah. Okay, yeah. And she didn't really know about it. So maybe she was busy before the battle and meetings, right? And he was kind of off on his own. And I guess in the hangar bay, people didn't really say anything. <laughs> he must have had like a really big tarp over it or something, right? It didn't look like it. <laughs> well, maybe actually, yeah. Or I don't know. People didn't ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> but to his credit, it looks exactly, it's a perfect one-to-one scale replica. Even Zeon notices later, but we'll get to that. <laughs> it does. It causes this sort of mass confusion event, Isaac, which is pretty hilarious. Yeah. He takes his ball out. He doesn't really, I guess, think it through, right? Because he's put all this extra stuff on one side of the ball. So now the now the ball is not balanced, and he starts falling out of control. And uh, it causes a dom to notice him who then informs Zeon that the Gundam's been defeated because this Dom pilot can only see the head. So, of course, he thinks, oh, the gun- it's just the Gundam head, therefore someone must have blown up the body. <laughs> you know, that gets around Zeon. They're like, oh, the Gundam's been destroyed, you know. And who shows up, Isaac? There's a cameo with your favorite character. Oh, of course, yeah. As you remember, we're at Solomon. And guess who made their name at Solomon? None other than the Nightmare of Solomon, Anna Gato, who shows up in 083. 
he is present and he receives word through the rest of the Xeon chain of command that the gun has been destroyed. It's heads floating through space. Where's the body? We don't know. But if the head's flying around, the rest of the Gundam must have been destroyed. So what does Gato do? Well, he decides to relocate to a more critical part of the battlefield since the Gundam isn't a threat. And this actually gives Amuro Ray the opportunity to go into that zone Gato was previously guarding and head into Solomon. As Uman says, so they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what happened. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I was at the battle, but you know, draw your own conclusions. <laughs> I don't remember if, if he had already taken out one or two doms at this point, but Uman and uh, Yona approach, you know, Solomon, the fortress. Yona's in a, in a gym and she gets on the ledge peeking in and Uman peeks in too. But, you know, him peeking in literally looks like a head is peeking into the fortress and he's right next to the GM and someone in the another dom looks at the gym and the ball next to each other and thinks now that the Gundam is still is still around because it just looks like a huge Gundam is peeking into Solomon uh, because all he can see is is the head of the Gundam on the ledge and then the gym <laughs> next to it so then he goes and extrapolates Isaac and he figures out that if if the Gundam head is that big then the rest of the Gundam must be huge too and it must be as big as the the perfect Zeong with the legs of course yeah i mean <laughs> Well, actually, I thought they said later on they made the Xeong the same size, just based on this intel. But um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Maybe yeah, that's what it yeah. Was. When the um, yeah, when the head peeks over the ridge, like I think one of the Doms books it. <laughs> like, <laughs> he doesn't even stay and fight. I think the Zaku's were kind of shocked and they kind of stay. But yeah, it just shows how powerful the the impact of the Gundam as a symbol has been. Um, leading up to now, all its constant victories. So yes, uh, that information gets relayed back to Xeon Command and spreads through the chain of command that, hey, the Gundam's still around. And not only that, I think our intel was wrong. Its measurements are actually massive, you know? <laughs> so then three more doms take off uh, to try to, you know, take out this enormous Gundam. They have to decide whether the small Gundam running around is the real Gundam or the big uh, the big one, and they decide that the big one must be real because it's 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 just big, <laughs> you know. And they have this image, I think, in their mind of like it's stepping on other on like the Zaku's and stuff. And they're like, that's that's why he's so powerful. Yeah. It's like the other one's too small. It must be a GM in in disguise. We have to go for the large <laughs> one. Of you know, <laughs> we're the Devil Squadron. We have to go. <laughs> oh, Uman eventually takes out all the Doms by you know a, a variety of acrobatic ways through luck essentially <laughs> yeah i mean he throws an asteroid at one kind of some ridiculous stunts yeah but i guess at the end isaac i didn't really understand the last three doms that he fought they were painted with the skull and crossbones on their chest very similar to how the x1 skull heart is in this series as well as the x3 was yeah uh, in back in crossbone gundam and at the end of this chapter we flash to the the day when they picked up the x1 in, in the mother vanguard so sometime in you know the uc 130s early 130s with him and him and uh, kincaid and uman is the one that ends up suggesting they paint the crossbones on on the crossbone gundam and i didn't really understand like i get that like that's cool that we got to see why they like who who thought of putting it on there but like why did he want the crossbone on there when the doms with the crossbone were his enemies did i did you understand that um i was trying to think i was like well 
Technically, the crossbones aren't the crossbone vanguard symbol, right? It's that sword in the crossbones. It's not a skull. Correct, yeah. So, it's, like, it's more like the coat of arms thing. Yeah, that always kind of threw me for a loop. But I'm thinking maybe for him, it's kind of like a callback to an event that had luck as a factor, an event that had success and victory when the odds were against you. You know, it's, it's almost like um, a trophy symbol to him in a way because he went toe-to-toe against the Devil Squadron, beat them all, and... He's kind of bringing back their symbol, I guess, as a way of showing, you know, it, it can be done. Yeah. So that that's kind of what I went along with. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, that was that was kind of the only thing I could think of, too. I just was curious if you had any other. Yeah, it, I think it would be on. like if it, in an alternate timeline, Char killed Amaro. If you see Char running around and like on one of his shoulders is painted the, uh, you know, the unicorn. Mm, okay. You'd be like, yeah. okay, that's kind of you know, a, a kill symbol, sort of co-opting someone else's symbol and, you know, using that. Yeah. Okay. It's a trophy. I like that. Yeah. I can go with that. So listeners, even if you don't read the rest of Skullheart, you could read this chapter and still laugh. I would recommend this to anyone, you know, even if you haven't read Crossbone Gundam. I thought it was a pretty funny chapter. Yeah. And if you're a 080 fan, it's, or 0083 fan, it's definitely a, a kind of a must read because it really, it might be the only explanation of, okay, if Gato's so great, how come he never went toe-to-toe with Amaro? And this explains yeah. why. He was poorly informed and made a wrong decision. <laughs> <laughs> the, that panel was great, too, because, like, he takes off and then immediately Amro sneaks in. And it, it, the way it's drawn, if you animated it, you could totally tell the Gundam looking left, looking right, and just kind of shrugging its shoulders and, and flying into someone. <laughs> I guess the way is clear. I guess the doms are retreating. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter two puts us back in UC-0133 which is the year that Crossbone Gundam took place in. And here we see a mystery girl who we saw at the very beginning of the um, of the volume in sort of this prologue writing a book about the Crossbone Vanguard. This mystery girl is reminiscing about Tinkerbell picking her up on Captain Hook's pirate ship, which is clearly uh, the Mother Vanguard coming near her home, which is an asteroid called Neverland, Isaac. So we're getting real, real big into the fairy tale imagery here. Yeah, I doubt the Jupiter Empire designated one of their bases Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> and we see that Tobia encountered this girl before in UC-0133. He wrecked his Pez Batala here at some point. She introduces herself to Tobia as Twink Stellar Labrad, or Labrad, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but I'm just going to call her Twinkerbell. Yeah, I mean, I went with Princess of the Planet, which of course is not a planet because it's an asteroid. <laughs> Yes. But that's what she's referred to pretty constantly. Upon seeing Tobia, she wonders if he is her Peter Pan. So this this girl is desperate, I think, to get off this rock. She's living a life of hope and fantasy, Brian. And who could blame her? She's stuck on an asteroid. (laughs) And it turns out that she has a pretty sad backstory, actually. This chapter took place during the voyage to Earth from Jupiter that the Mother Vanguard went on uh, during Crossbone Gundam when they were chasing Dogati to Earth. They needed supplies, and so they stopped at this asteroid and it turned out, though, that it was a secret mine for the Jupiter Empire that they had taken over 10 years ago. And, and during that takeover, Twinkerbell's parents uh, died, presumably at the hands of the Jupiter Empire. And she's just kind of been left there since with just her storybooks to read, just her fairy tales. That's pretty sad, Isaac. Yeah. But also, I'm trying to wonder, like, is this a case of, well, even the Jupiter Empire won't kill children like that? You know, like, sure, they wasted her parents, but they kind of just let her have the run of the place. Is that what we need to infer? I mean, maybe she played some important role into keeping them 
the place running, I would imagine. Oh, okay. Um, you know what? This might have been, you know, back when Dogati Prime was more human. So mm, maybe yeah, he was fair. like, you know what? I have a daughter. Uh, her parents are dead. Let her run around the library. Give her rations. You know, she, what, right. what could she possibly do to get in our way? And so Tobia being good guy, Tobia, he can never resist helping anyone. So he says, you know what? Don't worry. I'll get you out of here and I'll take you back to your parents' hometown to make you feel better. She then immediately tries to knock him out, Isaac, <laughs> and turn him over to the Jubert Empire to try to, I guess, buy the asteroid with him or, you know, turn him over in exchange for the asteroid and then they can leave and just leave her alone. But they tell her that they don't care and they're going to blow it up instead. So that was a, a very rushed interaction, I thought, but Tobia recovers. He goes and gets his X-1. Jupiter sends out a bunch of the Nautilus mobile armors. Which actually, this was the most interesting part of this chapter to me, because in Crossbone Gundam, the first time we saw the Nautilus mobile armor was when uh, Karis took it out in the last volume, I'm pretty sure, like pretty close to the last chapter. But it turns out that Toby has already fought a whole bunch of uh, Nautiluses here. So, or I guess Kincaid, I don't know, but... Yeah, these, these aren't the regular Nautiluses either. Like I'm sure Professor Karis got like the top of the line one. These ones look like the mass-produced version, you know, and that's never as good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kincaid sliced him up pretty good. So yeah. this was the chapter where Kincaid used Tobia's disabled Pez Batala as an axe. Like, Tobia's Pez Batala couldn't move, but he just turned the axe on, and then and then Kincaid picked it up and swung it around and, and sliced up the Nautiluses, which was a cool scene, but I thought overall this, this chapter was kind of like whatever. Yeah, you know, it was very much a um, kind of a Bernadette callback in a way because, you know, the princess thing and... Gotta save the princess, right? You always gotta save the space princess. Yeah, God, there's so many at Jupiter. You never see this <laughs> stuff happening around Earth, so this is clearly <laughs> some Jupiter culture thing, right? The only space princess that we needed here in the Earth sphere was Mineva. Yeah, yeah, but she, God, she's determined to turn her back on it. My God, <laughs> I feel like I'm taking crazy pills at like the Zobby, or the Zeon meetings, right? I'm like, am I the only one who's hearing what she's saying? Like, she's actively working against our organization. <laughs> You ungrateful little princess. Yeah, can we find like a Toto niece or something like? A nephew from the <laughs> Glemmy Toto side? Oh my god. <laughs> they should have backed him on harder. Yeah, is there like a Bobby Karn or something that like we can use? <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the chapter, Kincaid and Tobia have, have defeated Jupiter and, and ridded her of her problem, but she refuses to leave, but simply asks Tobia to visit again. And the Mother Vanguard takes off. And now we at least understand who was writing the book at the beginning of, of this volume. Um, I assume we're going to see Twinkerbell more, maybe in the sequel. I hope so. <laughs> She's just by herself. Go help her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that was kind of it for Chapter 2. Chapter 3 is called Pirate's Booty. This takes place in two years later in UC 0135. So we're now two years past when Crossbone Gundam took place. And here we meet up again with Captain Harrison, Isaac. I think both you and I liked Captain Harrison. He was a he was a fun character. Captain Harrison, as we've discussed before, Brian, clearly attended the Bright Noah Academy for gentlemanly officers because he's a great guy. I don't have any complaints about him. He's everything the Federation should be. He is. He's the model ace pilot that you want to promote and yeah. have all your cadets look up to. He's even got a cool name, the Blue Flash. To the Federation's credit, they really doubled down on blue, right? After the one-year war, <laughs> after the grips conflict and all that, they were like, you know what? Anything the aces are in, probably going to be blue. Our main suits, going to make them blue. Blue's our thing. Yeah. Xeon, they're stuck in green and red and all that stuff. We'll have a monopoly on blue. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Xeon has an has a iron grip on the Christmas colors. Yeah, right? they're just... 
Man, they they took all the green in the Earth sphere. <laughs> <laughs> it was a green paint shortage in 0079. Uh, have you seen anywhere else? I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> so Captain Harrison is in his F-91, and he is attempting to rescue a mail ship, cow pedestrian. Of course. What are you guys, pirates? Stealing the mail now? <laughs> Uh, so this mail ship is under attack, I guess, or... It's been hijacked. It's a hostage situation now. They've been taken hostage by this... Would you call them like a splinter group of the Jupiter Empire? I wouldn't say they're on an official mission here, Isaac. No, they're essentially just a criminal gang at this point. They just want to hijack and, and hold ransom. So these Jupiter Empire thugs are controlling this ship, and they have some new Jupiter mobile suits here, Isaac. One is called the Aranya. It's based on the same frame or is the same frame as the Abaho from Crossbone Gundam. So it's like a, like a mini. It's like 10 meters tall, I think. What'd you think? I thought it was pretty ugly, but for a Jupiter suit, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is continuing Jupiter's tradition of like taking an animal that they might have a vague idea about. And then, <laughs> and then they like kind of combine it with a mobile suit, but it looks very weird and kind of unnerving. So it's kind of like half a spider got on top of a mobile suit. It's odd, and it performs probably about as poorly as you'd expect. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do too well. Yeah, it's got that spider thing on the top, and then the legs look like bug legs or like hornet legs. It's creepy. It's a creepy crawler. Hey, that's what these criminals got, and they're going to use it to hijack the mail. <laughs> Such a fraudulent offense in the year you see 0135. Oh, yeah, so the mail's not even safe in the Universal Century. Oh, my God. <laughs> May I just say, this is a massive mail ship. It might be bigger than the Mother Vanguard. Like, this isn't, you know, just your run-of-the-mill ship. I would imagine it's bigger than a clop. No, it felt like an aircraft carrier that delivers mail. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> I don't know what the mail, like, schedule is in the Universal Century, but it seems like if they're putting this much mail on this thing... They must be doing it like once a month. That's a good point. I didn't think about that because they can normally send a, a communication, right? Like, you know, a little yeah. video message or whatever. So this must be for like, all right, you get your physical mail every six months. So we have to pack this thing to the gills. We need a <laughs> massive ship for everything going out. Yeah, it was like that cargo ship that got stuck in the Panama <laughs> Canal. <laughs> yes, but like ruined, uh, like caused delays for <laughs> half the world. <laughs> So Captain Harrison here has been sent to rescue this ship, and all of a sudden the Crossman Vanguard approaches. In probably the most interesting part of this chapter is that they are using the little gray, Isaac. They are not using the Eos Nix, which means that your pal Sherry, Rona, did not give them the Eos Nix after the Mother Vanguard was destroyed. So they are, they've been downgraded to the little gray. I guess we're not going to see Sherry, but you know what? Knowing her, she's up to some plots somewhere. At some side, at some secret meeting, she's doing something. Oh, Sherry. Sherry, Sherry, Sherry. I hope she comes back with the Eos Nix. She so. better. She's so important. She's got so much power and secrets. But you know what? This ship is far from defenseless, isn't it, Brian? What did it do? It went into like attack mode, right? Yeah, like, all right. It kind of dropped off its... The residential section, right? Or something yeah, like that? Yeah, something like the habitation section, whatever. And then sort of as a, um, I don't know if they did this to homage the Mother Vanguard, but part of its upper section lifts up to kind of look like sails. So it vaguely looks like a ship with sails, you know? Yeah. Um, I did like, though, about this chapter is that, you know, it wasn't just Tobia in the X1 here. They brought the flints along, too. So the flints are still going, Isaac, at least for a little while. Yeah, good. I mean, Crossbow Vanguard doesn't have really any kind of support mobile suits, right? No no little kind of uh, grunt mobile suits to use, so I'm glad they got the flint still out there. 
the leader of the thugs reveals kind of like why we're all here. So she says that two years ago, someone bribed the Federation to allow Jupiter to come to Earth faster uh, over time. And that bribe is documented in some executive's office. And I think she thinks that that letter or whatever is in this ship. And so she's looking for it and she's going to use it to extort the Federation. And I thought this was kind of a big deal, Isaac, but Toby kind of doesn't really care. And he just beats them all up. And then they, he he just like takes the mail that he wanted, or it was a package, I think he says. Oh God, wasn't it? Uh, oh, it's photos. Yes, he got photos from. Well, I was about to call her Bera. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> photos from Cecily and Seabook on Earth. They've been married. They got a baby. It. They're just doing great, Brian. Kincaid's just full dad mode, holding that little baby. Happy new family life. So it doesn't seem like uh, Kincaid's going to come back and do any piloting anytime soon, Isaac. No, I'd imagine not, which is unfortunate. So we won't be seeing him for the rest of the story, right, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> yep, he's uh, he's not in the rest of the volume, everybody. He's gone. So. <laughs> That's it for Seabook. <laughs> changing diapers. <laughs> Just Tobia. He's busy. <laughs> So that's the end of chapter three. Chapters four and five, they're, they're kind of like the meat of the book, I would say, Isaac. This section was called The Ultimate Soldier, parts one and two. Uh, this is the Amaro Ray story. When you saw The Ultimate Soldier, what did you think? <sighs> Definitely not anything concerning Amaro Ray. I thought, oh, we're going to be dealing with a cyborg <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah. Something very Jupiter. Oh, they clone Zabine. <laughs> something wacky, <laughs> you know? I could totally see Zabine coming back as like a like a bio unit. Yeah. Clone thing. Yeah, and like he's got like his little Jupiter aristocracy now and you know all that jazz. But that's not what we got, Brian. No, it is not. So these chapters take place in UC0136, so one year forward from the last chapter. Mm-hmm. And we open with a man who comes to the little gray. His name is Gray Stork. <laughs> Although I've traditionally seen his name written as Gray Stoke, so I'm not actually sure which one it is. It's either Stork or Stoke. His name is Biff Codename. <laughs> <laughs> his name is Randy McDisguise. <laughs> this guy is going to turn out to be Judah from Double Zeta. <laughs> he really doesn't take being like undercover too too seriously. <laughs> But for the moment, his name is Gray Stork or Gray Stoke. So he arrives and he asks Tobia to help him with a dangerous mission to rescue the captured Amaro Ray. And this is where Isaac's mind started to freak out like, <gasps> it's UCO 136. How can Amaro Ray be alive? Absolutely. I was like, oh my God, they never found the body. Like, this is a crime drama, right? Where, like, we're like, well, you know, the detectives and like. <laughs> You're the, like, it's, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah, the detectives and the district attorney that are always like, well, we can't say they're dead. You know, we never found a body. You know, <laughs> and then, like, you know, there's like some conspiracy or something. I was thinking this whole time, oh my God, of course the Jupiter Empire would have Amaro, like, locked in some, some cylinder filled with water or something, right? <laughs> that would be pretty terrifying. The truth is not that far off, really. No, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Gray Stoke or Gray Stork, he didn't come to the Crossbone Vanguard. He came to their sort of cover story, which they're working as like a shipping company called Black Rose Shipping. And Judah or Gray Stoke sees right through it and says, well, your worker mobile suits are poorly disguised. I wonder what's under that fake armor that you have on the top. Because um, they basically <laughs> took the flints and the crossbone and they put these, like, I don't know, it kind of looked like a amphibious Xeon mobile suit helmet on the top. 
Yeah, it's a bell jar, and like they put like claw manipulators over the actual arms. It's <laughs> it's very clear that this isn't like some standard issue cheap worker mobile uh, mobile suit. <laughs> so before Toby accepts Greystoke's offer, he says, "Well, you have to check with my commander." And then we get to see the helm, Isaac, and Twinkerbell is there with Bernadette, kind of on like the you know side computers doing whatever navigation or something. And the person in the commander chair is someone named Chairman Onmo. Onmo? Yes, they're led by a woman. <laughs> who, who is this woman? I think, I think that's one of the biggest questions of the volume or biggest weaknesses of the volume. We have no idea who this woman is. Right. I was like, okay, she was chairman, but then she was captain. Because if you remember, one of the crew members on the bridge had to correct herself addressing her. So I was like, well, has she not been Captain Long? Mm. What exactly is happening? I don't know. I wish there was more backstory to her. I almost felt like she was a Cecily Standin, if that makes sense, right? Right. It was very much, we have to put a female captain because that's kind of Crossbones thing when I thought, well, not necessarily. I don't know why, but yeah. Well, I was thinking we're either going to see more of her in Steel 7 and get more backstory there, or maybe she was in Crossbone Gundam, like on, on the bridge, and I just don't remember her. No. I don't think we saw her on the bridge, yeah. I feel like she had a very distinct design, so I feel like I would remember her if she was in Crossbone Gundam, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it didn't seem like she was wearing a uniform, right? She kind of had like a dress kind of thing? Yeah, for some reason lab coat comes to mind, but that can't be right. But yeah, Kind of, I don't know what to call it, space dress. <laughs> yeah, she didn't look like she was dressed like Cherry, so I don't think she was, you know, Miss Aristocracy. She didn't have mm. a uniform on, so I don't think she was completely an officer which is maybe why they kind of that one crew member had to correct herself and say oh yeah captain sorry so business background maybe since they're technically not on like the main warship could be yeah could be hopefully we get more on that in this in the sequel but our our pal uman is skeptical of stoke the crew here does confirm that stoke is the captain of the helium fleet that goes between jupiter and earth that's kind of an interesting role for judah to have taken on yeah stoke gives them a little more information he says that he's learned of one of Jupiter's schemes, and he's came here looking for people to help him uh, that he can trust to foil their plan. And Jupiter has stolen the battle recorder from Amuro's RX-78 core fighter with his original combat data on it from 0079, and they plan to use that battle recorder to make a copy of Amuro Ray via a bio-brain unit like Dogati had. And Stoke thinks the bio-brain may already be complete, Isaac. I mean, holy crap. Yeah, that's a lot to take in at once. Number one, somebody kept the core fighter. There was the combat data in there that the Federation, of course, knowing the Federation, they didn't, you know, secure it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then Jupiter had the, of course, Jupiter, who else would do it but Jupiter? They had the skill and the planning to actually steal it and take it back to the Jupiter sphere. I think that's a cool idea, Isaac, because, I mean, you know, if you think about it, after a bow coup... His core fighter was just floating around. I guess it would have been hard for someone to find it. So maybe it's just been floating out there all this time and Jupiter finally tracked it down. Probably. Who knows how long Jupiter Empire's been around. Maybe they've observed the whole one-year war and they were keeping an eye on the Gundam. So Jupiter made sure to secure what they could related to the Gundam while not being noticed at a Baku. Could be. Crazy. I like it. I like it. Well, they go to this base where Stoke thinks that this bio-brain unit may be being developed. And Jupiter, of course, attacks. 
Mobile suits seem not to be in short supply at Jupiter, Isaac. For as many resource problems they have, they have mobile suits for days. Yeah. When you have like a militarized society, though, it's it's very North Korea, right? Like where they threw everything into their military. That's like 90% of the budget. Everybody else can just <laughs> kind of, you know, sip water and hope they have enough oxygen left. <laughs> <laughs> so Tobia goes out in the X-1. The Flints go out and Doke goes out with him. And he has his own mobile suit, Isaac which looks pretty beat up, and it's called the Gump. But the Gump is clearly the Double Zeta Gundam Isaac. It has its Double Zeta signature arm cannons, and kind of the, the chest and like skirt is still pretty intact, and like I think maybe one leg. Did you realize this was the Double Zeta right away when you looked at it, or what did you think of it? No, I didn't know right away. I kind of had to piece it together and have it fed to me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, look, a new one. <laughs> So it's definitely beat up. So clearly, our pal Judah here has been maintaining this thing for, he was in what, UC 88? 40 years? Yeah, 40 plus years. I think you're right. That's a long time. It's a long time. Well, he doesn't have much to do since he clearly doesn't put much enthusiasm into being a spy. (laughs) (laughs) I am James McJames. (laughs) How long do you think it took him to think up the name Greystoke? I'm sure someone handed it to him. Well, and what, which one do you like better, Gray Stork or Gray Stoke? I think Stork is better because, like, I don't know. I feel like the whole animal thing and, you know, a stork isn't something that you assume is a kind of a predator or a threatening animal. So maybe it disarms people. If his name was like, you know, my name's a Remington Lion, you know, you might be like, oh, wow, that's a powerful name. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering which one is, like, wrong and which one is correct. And now that I think about it, Stork might be right because if he's the captain of the Helium Fleet, then he's like delivering things like a stork would. Yeah, exactly. When it fits better, we'll go with it. Yeah. All right. I got to change my headcanon now. I've been calling him Gray Stoke for years. Nope. Stork. So it turns out it's Gray Stoke. Per the wiki, Uso from Victory Gundam points out that Gray Stoke is based on Tarzan's human name, which is Viscount Gray Stoke. I actually haven't read V Gundam Outside Story yet, but this seems pretty plausible to me. So we'll confirm it when we read it. So anytime we say stork from here on out, just pretend we said stoke. Stoke, not Stork. And here's where Chairman Onmo announces that the Crossbone Vanguard has been reborn. And that was really when I was like, who are you? Like, why, Do you have the power to say that? Like, Yeah, I was like, well, I mean, Sherry's still out there, so I think she would be like, what are you talking about? I've been here for years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cecily's kind of secretly on Earth, but yeah, sure, whatever. We'll go with it. She wants to be dramatic. So they all launch against all these Jupiter mobile suits that came out. Tobia uses his new crossbow blaster, which has a fancy name, Isaac. Did you see what it's called? No, what's it called? The Peacock Smasher. That's perfect, because (laughs) this isn't like a regular crossbow. It's got like, on the actual bow section, there's like multiple beam barrels spread out. And I think he can like change the the pattern over which he fires them. It was a pretty cool weapon, Isaac, even if it's a little elaborate. Yeah, it's, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Chewbacca's bowcaster. <laughs> You're right. It even kind of looks similar. Yeah, except, I mean, this thing has way more barrels, and it can do cool things like, you know, while firing beams, it rotates. So <laughs> It's, it's got to rotate. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of overkill, honestly. <laughs> Jupiter troops don't have a chance, as usual. Yeah, Tobia pretty much shreds through every Jupiter person that we see here, except the one that's coming up. So as they get closer to where they think the Amuro Ray BioBrain unit may be being developed, 
Uman cracks a joke, Isaac, and said he's not that worried. He's just going to befriend him since they're old war buddies from Solomon. Of course. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but as they get closer, Isaac, Tobia gets this terrible new type feeling. And it, we, we peek in, and it looks like there are thousands of attempted Amuro biobrains, you know, simulating, trying to find the, the one Amuro biobrain that's working. And all of a sudden, Uman's flint takes a direct hit. His sort of upper torso arm is blown off by something new. And out comes this, well, how would you describe it, Isaac? It's this majestic Jovian suit. I would describe this as perhaps one of the most intimidating looking mobile suits in the whole Crossbone Gundam series. This is a Jupiter Gundam. Yes, it's called the Amakusa or the Jupiter Gundam. Have you seen a color version of this, Isaac? No. Well, what colors are or is it? It's basically all gray. Interesting. That's kind of intimidating, actually, in its own way. It's got very dark green feet and green shoulder things, but basically the rest of it is gray uh, wow. with some yellow eyes. It's very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> very appropriate for a uh, an insane mine upload of Amuro to pilot to battle for in, on behalf of the Jupiter Empire. <laughs> What makes it intimidating to you, Isaac? Well, from what I recall, it only has like one eye. It has two eye slots, but it's one eye kind of move, moves between the two of them. That's kind of a Jupiter thing I think I've noticed, or at least that's how mm -hmm. the, uh, the animation's been showing how that works. Aside from that, it's like really good at combat because Amuro's in effect controlling it. It's got like a, a cool beam weapon and like this cool like meteor hammer shield thing. <laughs> yes, listeners, you may remember the Gundam Hammer from 0079. I don't think that was in the movies. I think that was only in the TV show, if I remember correctly. But it's basically the ball and chain that Amuro had, which was kind of a ridiculous weapon, right? But uh, it's got two of them, I think, embedded in this pincer-looking shield. And it, it can, like, shoot the hammer out um, on a chain, which I guess that's a nod to, to Amuro, because I'm pretty sure he's the only person I've ever seen with a, in a mobile suit that's had a ball and chain. Can you think of anyone else? No, no. It ultimately had to be retired when uh, beam weaponry became so standard. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's efficient from like a being able to reuse it, but it's pretty close range, and that seems like a high-skill weapon. Uh, but yeah, it's got this beam rifle, and then I think what's striking about this one, Isaac, is the V-fin antenna. They're really, really long, which I think creates some of the intimidation for me. Yeah, it's kind of like antlers in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Demonic antlers. Yeah, it looks like a possessed Gundam, which kind of that's what it is right <laughs> yeah very jupiter in design though the kind of the curves their mobile suits have in a lot of areas i'm glad they made it aesthetically jupiter yep i agree so the jupiter gundam everybody if you've never seen it go look it up also called the amakusa and the amakusa wastes no time getting into the action it fires and it blows through yona's flint and she she has to eject immediately in her crossfighter uh the other guy that was out there in, in the third flint so his name is jared I think he was the guy that had the knives. Remember the guy that threw the knife in Zabini's hand? I'm pretty sure that's Jared. Oh, wow. Cool. He tries to retaliate, but the Amakusa moves in and kind of swiftly just slashes his flint in half. He ejects too. So now all three of the Crossman Vanguard's flints, Isaac, have been downed by the Jupiter Gundam. Wow. That is a big shakeup for the Crossman Vanguard. If you think about their mobile suit complement, they have the X-1 and three flints. 
no one can really challenge that. I mean, Harrison's over here in his F-91. That thing's 10 years old. Jupiter hasn't really been able to beat the crossbone yet. They went from having four great suits to having just one in a matter of seconds. That's what you get when you fight biocomputer brain uh, Amaro. He's taking them apart for sure. These flints were support suits, though. That's what they do. They always die in combat. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully they can get repaired or we can get new ones because they were pretty neat. Yeah, I hope new ones show up. The Amakusa goes right for Tobia. He opens up with his peacock smasher and does this barrel roll to try to make like a random shot that maybe Amaro won't be able to predict. But the Amakusa dodges and retaliates with the aforementioned hammer. Stoke gets in front of Tobia to take the brunt of the blow. Uh, and the ball hits his gump's leg and, and just cleaves it right off. And this is actually a pretty cool moment, Isaac, because now, again, this is being published in 2003-ish, 4-ish. Uh-huh. Gray Stork had previously appeared in the same author's manga from the mid-90s, which I think was called Victory Gundam Side Story. So not only did he write Crossbone wow. Gundam in the 90s, but he also wrote a Victory Gundam Side Story. And Gray Stork showed up there. And in that story, I haven't double-checked this, but I assume this is what he's showing here. I believe in that story, the gump, it has one leg replaced with something that's, like, clearly not the original leg. <laughs> and that would have taken place further in the future, closer to Victory Gundam around, was it, UC-150-ish? So here, yeah. we're seeing that leg get cleaved off by the Amakusa, which is pretty, that's a pretty cool piece of continuity, right? Yeah, I'm glad he did that. It's always good to show that, you know, UC is one timeline, so we can do callbacks and things like that. So Tobia tries to fire again with the Peacock Smasher, but the Amakusa slices off his arm. Tobia tries the Zanber, but the Amakusa beats him to the the punch and slices his own Zanber in half. I mean, Isaac, they're not doing well here. (laughs) What do you expect fighting against something that's like the Jupiter Gundam? I mean, even Dogati didn't even get inside a Jupiter Gundam, and he could have, right? (laughs) He went inside those, uh, what were they called again? Navidads. Yeah. (laughs) The Navidad, the Divinidads. Although the Navidads is hilarious. He loves Christmas. That's his favorite Jupiter holiday. <laughs> I hope that when they animate Crossbone in like 10 years from now, listeners, and when all the Divinidads show up in that grand scene, maybe they'll play Felice Navidad. I mean, that's how we know who who, who Crux Dogedi is. We know who, we know Dogedi Prime is in the Christmas colored one. <laughs> <laughs> and then something interesting happens. Isaac, Toby, and, and you know, Stork are on the ropes, but then the Batalas approach from behind, but the Amakusa shoots them too since they were the test enemies in the Amaro BioBrain simulation. And now the base <laughs> is collapsing. Tobia and, and Stork decide that you know they really need to destroy this thing because it's too dangerous for Jupiter to have this. And Tobia pulls a pretty good move here to win Isaac. The Amakusa throws the hammer, the spike ball again, and Tobia grabs the chain with his scissor anchor and redirects it to take out the Amakusa's head. So what did you think about that? that move to beat Amuro. I thought that was cool. I mean, Amuro's pilot data certainly never encountered a scissor anchor. No, this is a chance to like clearly using a technology Amuro wouldn't have encountered in a way he probably never experienced. You know, Zeon never went for the chain. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then once the head of the Amakus is gone, Tobia steps in and stabs the cockpit with his beam knuckles. Oh, those were so cool. Yeah. It was like a triangle blade, pyramid blade thing. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like him and Kincaid use those things all the time in First Crossbone Gundam. Those things seem super useful, and they should put them on all mobile suits. I was going to say, it's it's very rare to see those in combat, but whenever people use them, it's always for like the killing blow, right? 
Right. It's when you've got nothing else left and you're just down to, you know, fisticuffs, essentially. Absolutely. <laughs> Death punch. KO. <laughs> so Tobia stabs the cockpit with the beam knuckles and the bile brain ejects and Tobia and Stoke are buried alive in this base, which now collapse. Uh, we get a little bit of narration here, Isaac, which we don't get too much of. Uh, I don't think the narrator is anyone we particularly know. It was just delivering factual information, which was a little unusual for this story. But it was some good narration. It said, you know, the bio brain was dying. And with his last dying moments, it detected these people still in the base uh, with no way out. And it felt emotion for the first time. And then just like Amuro did at the end of About Coup, it calls out to Tobia and it, it leads Tobia and uh, Grey Stork to safety back to the little Grey. And then the bio brain flatlines in space and dies. That was quite the two-chapter ride, Isaac. Yeah, that was crazy. It was like, all right, I'm going to kill you. And then, hey, I remember I had to escape into base once. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me guide you. <laughs> I know what to do. This base is going to blow up. I've been here before. Don't worry. I can get us out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I liked it. I, I thought it was a good short and sweet thing that could make a great either one episode or two episode show or, or maybe even one one nice little 45 minute ova uh-huh. i hope they animate this someday i think it'd be pretty cool yeah and it, it made sense too right it was it's very jupiter empire to bring back amuro but like only in the the basest the the minimum sense of bringing back amuro in a way they would want just as a a soulless pilot in a gundam a jupiter gundam yes in a gundam vessel just like dogady sort of yeah pretty much was this something that was happening autonomously you think or dogeti gave the go-ahead but you know timetables were timetables and he said you know we're going to have with the earth invasion who, who cares about the jupiter gundam it's one mobile suit we can still win i think dogeti definitely would have given the order to develop it but i think you're right i think timetables are timetables and this is when it was done that'd be my, that's my head canon. that makes sense yeah plus i think yeah he's also vain enough to think well we have the gas we have the nukes we've got our unstoppable mothership we are, we're already going to trick the Federation, and if things go bad, we have the Divinidads and the special Navidad piloted by Admiral Isaac. <laughs> so, <laughs> spreading Christmas fear. Oh. <laughs> and, I mean, in his defense, he would have won except for that meddling kid, Tobia. Yeah, Tobia ruined everything. <laughs> would the Jupiter Gundam have made the difference if it showed up? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> I say yeah, for sure. It, well, if it was deli- with Amro as the bio brain, Yes, and it was in the Jupitris when it made its way to the Earth sphere. I'd say yeah, because, I mean, Kincaid barely beat Zabine. Kincaid's a great pilot. I think he's demonstrated that. But realistically, Tobia wasn't nearly as good of a pilot three years ago as he was in this chapter. And this Amro bio brain Jupiter Gundam basically beat the crap out of both Tobia and judah even though judah is kind of an old man now so i don't i don't know how that do you think piloting ability falls off as you get old hmm yeah i will but there have been some older pilots it's just rare you know yeah i mean i guess and in judah's defense here his his gump is a 40 year old mobile suit so maybe that's unfair comparison but i mean tobia seems like a pretty strong new type judah was certainly a a very strong new type in his time and amuro kind of just i mean he had him dead to rights isaac yeah, yeah. It would have wiped them all out. And I don't think Judah's been practicing very much. 
I mean, I'm sure Kincaid could have put up a decent fight, but I mean, he he had already fought Sabine. He'd already, you know, Kincaid can't fight everybody, right? So right, we would have needed Tobia, Kincaid, Cecily to get into a mobile suit, Burns. <laughs> <laughs> Who else? That might be it. Yeah, that might do it. Yeah, Karis might have he might have needed to help too. Oh wow, Professor Karis, he survived. He comes back in the uh, the mollusk or Geary, yeah, or Geary, whatever. His, his Somebody, name yeah. Raspberry, get get out there, Raspberry. Ra- raspberry, distract him with your space cleavage. Yeah, with your useless weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason I thought this story was cool, Isaac, is rarely do you get a franchise that will pervert its main character like this. I mean, I wouldn't say he was perverted so much as he was redeemed, because only the Jupiter Empire could have corrupted Amuro's, you know, thought and and brain this way right oh so you mean him leading them out at the end was the redemption in a way yeah and also anything that he kind of he with parentheses did as jupiter gundam amuro was really the result of the jupiter empire putting him through whatever training simulations they did which by the way were horrible since they used their own mobile suits as targets (laughs) (laughs) true true that was a flaw in the in the training and on that on their part. You know what? We have to train with something. Oh, we'll use our mobile suits. Won't that cause problems later? No, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> God, he killed them all. Whoops. Even like the professor running the show, like she never got out. Like everybody in that base died, right? Yeah, I mean it it collapsed unless they all escaped somehow before it blew up. But they, not all of them had you know Amra Ray leading them to safety. So yeah, I think if they were still in there, then they were everyone's they were gone because it blew up right after uh tobia and stork got out they're dead yeah yeah they're dead so that was the end of chapters four and five the ultimate soldier isaac chapter six i know this one was your favorite this one's called the monkey's satellite where to begin (laughs) this is kind of a harrison story so that was kind of cool right yeah poor harrison but yeah (laughs) so harrison i think it opens with him meeting his commander again and they're learning about there was a an attack, I think, on Federation ship by this asteroid that they found. And it's an old asteroid. They've got like a, an old Xeon advisor who's like, he's decrepit. He's like, he needs a cane. <laughs> this guy must be 105 years old or something. He looks like Master Roshi from Dragon yeah, Ball. Yeah, pretty much. Kind of like Dr. Strangelove. He like impulsively does like the Xeon salute. <laughs> <laughs> and... um so they're investigating what's going on you know what's this mysterious asteroid base why 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 are mobile suits attacking from here and they get to the base they get attacked by these bizarre looking mobile suits brian that have four (laughs) arms right they look like zaku's or modified zaku's with four arms yes they're i believe they're called the barbus yes barbus and it turns out based on the communications they're receiving these mobile suits are being piloted by monkeys brian chimpanzees <laughs> i couldn't believe it isaac i didn't know what to think i was thinking to myself is this like there was like a chemical weapon that turns humans into monkeys is this what this is becoming <laughs> i was thinking oh this must be a hallucination right like oh all humans are savages and animals that kind of comes up later mm. but no they were actual monkeys brian and the backstory is uh, ridiculous to the extreme <sighs> let me try to get through this the backstory is that Garmazali was doing a tour somewhere and he ran into like monkeys. <laughs> he saw like a monkey habitat and they were playing Pac-Man and Garma in all his brilliance thought to himself, Hey, if monkeys can play a game, 
they should obviously be able to pilot massive mobile suits into combat. <laughs> so clearly the same. Of course, of course. So Garma, probably because he knew Giran would say this is an insane idea, never told Giran about his plan to actually put this into practice. He strong-armed and used his authority to kind of order a group of scientists to get cracking and uh, start training chimpanzees to pilot mobile suits. The scientists set up this asteroid base for the project. They started cloning chimpanzees, training them. I, I guess apparently they deduced that they have to alter mobile suits to be more chimpanzee-like. So they removed the legs of Zaku's and put, you know, arms there since monkeys have more arm-like legs, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But something happened where I think the monkeys overran their their controllers or they just died out and the monkeys were left running the show, Brian. And that's who goes out into combat to fight Harrison and the team. Poor Harrison. And these monkeys kick his ass isaac yeah i mean they're savage they're fine like monkeys you know oh if you think about it they have an advantage in a way because all combat to this point in human history has been human on human nobody's trained to fight monkeys (laughs) (laughs) so it's a whole different ball game yeah absolutely what do you do on their defense too like the monkeys are skilled enough that they're able to use each of the arms forearms on their mobile suit to carry a weapon. So you're being attacked by four weapons at once. You know, Zaku's and Dom's and all that and whatever mobile you're fighting. It was hard enough fighting, you know, one carrying one rifle. But now they got four. And to make matters worse, these aren't regular chimpanzees, are they, Brian? These aren't old-type chimpanzees. Nope. If you thought that this story couldn't get more ridiculous, these monkeys have evolved to be new-type monkeys. New type chimpanzees, excuse me. (laughs) Yes, new type chimpanzees. They're that skilled. These Xeon scientists, man, when when Garma gave them their marching orders, they just ran with it, didn't they, Brian? They did. And you know what? They carried out their mission, Isaac, you know, with a plum. Yeah. Got this whole squadron full of fighting monkeys that are going around beating up Federation mobile suits. (laughs) But they have one weakness, Isaac. Absolutely, Brian. They have a critical flaw, and that being they're monkeys. So, Tobia, in a brilliant move to help out Harrison and the the rest of the Federation, decides, well, we're fighting monkeys. We need to defeat them or at least control them and influence them as if they were monkeys. So, he grabs some material in the hangar bay, grabs some yellow paint. I think he grabs some helium tanks, too. Fills up these big tarps with helium, ties them, and makes the shapes of giant bananas. So these monkeys see these things floating through space and they kind of go nuts. They stop their attack and start heading for the bananas, thinking they're giant bananas. And that gives Harrison and the Federation team the opportunity to blow the arms off their mobile suits, disabling them and removing them as a threat. And that's pretty much how it ends. (laughs) The monkey threat's gone. (laughs) Harrison and the team kind of go back. I don't think they really resolved what happened with the monkeys. Maybe they just kind of rescued them and studied them or released them to a zoo or something. (laughs) Give them actual bananas. (laughs) You got to think the Federation scientists took those chimpanzees in and are are studying them. Probably. But knowing the Federation scientists, like they'll bungle it somehow. Yeah. My favorite part of this chapter, Isaac, was towards the beginning when Harrison's like superior admitted that the monkeys destroyed five of their mobile suits already, but they couldn't justify sending Harrison any more Federation help because it was embarrassing for the Federation to be involved in such an operation. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who could blame him too, right? Like, 
I don't know. At a, if this failed, I assume the Federation would have used a nuke at that point, right? They'd be like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, you got to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, we have to hide all the evidence now. Like, just just blow that thing out of the sky. We'll, we'll explain something later. <laughs> <laughs> this brings Skullheart to a hilarious conclusion because we had chimpanzees, Brian, in Xeon mobile suits and Xeon uniforms. Yep, Skullheart was bookended by comedy, Isaac. You had the, the Gundam ball in the beginning and the new type chimpanzees at the end. The writing team was clearly having fun, right? I mean, why else was everything like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this was a pretty fan service uh, manga. I think there was a lot of humor, a lot of wackiness. But then you had the Amuro story, which I thought was actually pretty good. So I think you had a little bit of everything in this one volume. And like I said before, I really think this was a test to see if more if people wanted more Crossbow and Gundam. If you put Crossbow and Gundam out there seven years after it finished, would it sell again? And clearly it did. Because uh, shortly after this, they made another sequel called Steel 7, which we'll read in a few weeks uh, and review on the podcast. And going back and reading it now, I mean, it, it was a fun read. I enjoyed it, Isaac. How many horrors would you give it? If you approach it as just being not so much a you know high stakes continuity of Crossbone, but being more sort of a, a fun series of little mini episodes comedic even i'd give it four out of five horrors i had a fun time reading it you'll be surprised you'll smile as you see certain images it was pretty great i'm glad i i finished it <laughs> yeah i'm right there with you i think i'd give it eight out of ten horrors for the same exact reasons it's not the most serious work you know in the canon but uh it's a fun read uh, particularly the first chapter and then the last chapter is pretty wacky but it, you will find yourself laughing even if you hate yourself for it and the Amaro story was really good. So I, I agree. 8 out of 10. Uh, I recommend it. I think all the listeners should read it. Especially if you've read Crossbone Gundam. Why not keep on going? Isaac, if you're in charge of animating Crossbone Gundam, do you just make one long series that's Crossbone Gundam, Skullheart, Steel 7? Or do you break all of these up? Or do you even animate what's in Skullheart? I think Skullheart would definitely be lower priority. And you'd want to sort of do it in a different tone. I wouldn't even be okay if they did Crossbone Gundam in a more Hathaway type animation and this in a more kind of chibi way. I'd be happy to see these as long as they very clearly, whether with the opening titles or whatever, show that this is kind of a, it's bonus. It's not main story. Don't be concerned about the Jupiter Empire doing some, you know, Earth Sphere threatening plot. Just be more focused on enjoying the ride and appreciating the, the callbacks and the funny situations that happen. Yeah, I agree. I think you definitely do that with the first and last chapter. I, I think you could totally animate the Amaro piece as just a real serious episode, and I think that'd be fine. But yeah, the others could be, you know, like YouTube specials or something. Yeah, <laughs> just give them that, that bite-sized treatment. The whole, you know, Neverland thing, that was kind of, that might be the least important. I'm just wondering if maybe that's like a building block to something in Steel 7. Maybe this, maybe Twinkerbell is going to become very important. Because if she doesn't, then I agree. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why we spend time learning about her. But it might go to that base, right? It might need that base at some point. Uh, is there any questions for the listeners? Yeah, I got a question. Uh, <laughs> how do you train a monkey to pilot a mobile suit? <laughs> yeah, listeners, send us your designs for monkey piloted mobile suits. You know, would there be like a banana what? launcher? <laughs> what other animals can we put in mobile suits to pilot them? <laughs> Remember we talked about seed, like how there could be aliens that are the giant whales and they like they finally yeah. come back and like wage war against Earth. <laughs> yeah, what if when they come back though the the monkeys have taken over? Oh wow. It's like Planet of the Apes. Yeah, and then it devolves into the space whales versus the new type chimpanzees. Wow. That'd be so great. I'd I'd watch that. I want that OVA. 
Where are you on that one, Sunrise? You know what they could do in like the Gundam Seed, you know, third series that's going to come out or whatever? They could have that as like the fever dream of somebody. Like that <laughs> that's like a comedy episode. Like somebody gets a fever on the ship and like this is just his or her dream about like what's unfolding in space. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah, they they should definitely do that where maybe it's an OVA of just fever dreams of all of the animators and writers because they're under so much stress during the production of you know an actual yeah. series and we we just drift through their dreams one at a time and one of them would be the new type champ chimpanzees versus the space whales who would win brian who's your money on i don't know man i gotta think those space whales are kind of slow moving i think i would bet on the chimpanzees yeah but they're huge so i'm guessing they can take a lot of damage and they can also like carry like way bigger weapons it's a matter of the chimpanzees True. like gonna rely on their speed and their numbers i guess yeah i guess i need to know their loadouts and stuff you know it'd be a fierce fight for sure oh my god listeners who do you think would win the space whales or the yeah. new type chimpanzees <laughs> how did we get on this topic isaac we got the seed uh what the cephalopods versus the uh <laughs> the zionic chimps <laughs> it's like sports teams and gundam or something i can't believe they like made a point of saying garma okayed it <laughs> like only an idiot like him would like approve who else would do it <laughs> No one, because it's a terrible idea. <laughs> what an idiot. I would have loved if they put, like, Char in, like, the picture, too, of him, you know, be given the tour or whatever, and Char just kind of grinning as he's explaining the chimpanzee orders. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sh- they, yeah, they should have shown Char, like, egging him on, being like, yes, Garma, it's a good idea. You should do it. <laughs> yeah, like, can you imagine, Garma, a force of chimps? <laughs> <laughs> We've got to show the Federation we're not monkeying around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for... <laughs> Skull heart. What a way to go out, Isaac. If you describe this series to me, I wouldn't have been able to believe you, I think. You know, the whole, the ball Gundam, which is pretty awesome. I think I'd like to build one. And the chimpanzees, <laughs> it all just got so wacky. I, I was not prepared for the chimpanzees, I'll say that. No, but they were a fun addition. But you know what? It's still better than Double O Movie. Yeah, absolutely. You hear that, Double O Movie fans? <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's calling you out. He was ready to duke it out, too, with his army of chimps. Shots fired. (laughs) I'll put my army of chimps up against those silvery, slithery aliens any day of the week. Absolutely. Let's make an alliance of, like, the whales (laughs) and chimps against the uh, ELSs, whatever they were called. (laughs) All right, listeners. So let us know. Space chimps, space whales. You make your decision. Isaac, take us away. All right, listeners. Before you go to sleep tonight, stand next to your bed. Get on your knees, put your hands together, look up at the ceiling, and hail the Jupiter Empire. Good night, everybody.